Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. One of the things I've said before is, as Taz got older, you know, she was 25, it was one week after her 25th birthday when, you know, the cops come to my door that she's at the hospital and they're life flighting her to Kansas City. I mean, we'd literally be texting on the phone and we're going to go see Star is Born. I mean, you know, this is not an expected thing. It was just a shocking thing. But I do believe that somehow she and I are working together on something we agreed to do somehow, you know, way back when. And I do believe that I will be joined back with her, you know, and that we will have infinity together. You know, this time here on planet Earth is so short. So I get some comfort from that. Hello there, friends, and welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel. Somebody said that phrase reminded them of death. And initially I was like, death? No, it's not a podcast about death. But then I thought about it and I realized, you know, it kind of is about death. It's about death to the part of us that thinks we don't have enough of whatever we feel like we need in order to pursue our passion, our purpose, or our calling in life. It's a rebirth of what's truly important, which is saying yes to whatever's in our heart. And I don't mean that in an airy-fairy way. I actually mean that in a very practical way. And these conversations are about real people with real obligations and real obstacles. And they somehow found the courage to say yes to what was in their heart. And because of that, they found themselves on quite the adventure. And speaking of which, this week's guest could be the poster child for that paradigm. Her name is Pam Grout, and she's a New York Times bestselling author. She's a travel blogger who's visited every continent except for Antarctica, and she's a student of A Course in Miracles. I first found out about Pam years ago through her bestselling book, E Squared, Nine Do-It-Yourself Energy Experiments That Prove Your Thoughts Create Your Reality. I can't remember how I originally came across the book, but Long story short, it's a book that helps you prove that you are the universe and the universe is you. Again, not in an airy-fairy way, but in a practical way. And she shows you how to gather pretty hard evidence that you're creating your reality through performing very specific experiments in your real life and then watching how things start to change. It's so much fun. It's very bizarre. I've done all nine experiments and I have to say they worked to a T. Anyway, E-Squared started a movement of tens of thousands of people, myself included, who began to reimagine what it means to manifest. And in the process, we realized something really important. Manifesting things doesn't stop or start when we say, ready, set, go. What Pam's book reminds us of is that we're actually manifesting non-stop. And the only question is, are we aware of it or not? So this was a very enjoyable conversation with somebody I've admired for a very long time, 
and I'm thrilled that she accepted my invitation to come onto the podcast and share the wisdom that she's gleaned from her adventures and from the rocky parts of her journey as well. Because even for those of us who know full well that we co-create our reality, life is still going to test us. And Pam has definitely been tested in ways that you wouldn't wish upon anyone. But more about that in the episode. For now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this delightful conversation into the journey of the incomparable Miss Pam Grout. Pam, thanks so much for joining at the end of the tunnel. As always, I like to start these conversations talking about childhood. If you could think back to little Pam uh, growing up in Kansas, I believe, what was your favorite toy or activity as a child? (laughs) Well, to kind of go back to that library thing we were talking about before, I love going to the library and reading, but I was actually born in Kentucky. My father was a Methodist minister, so he got an assignment in Kansas when I was four. So we moved to Kansas at that time. I didn't have a lot of toys. I mean, I had a doll. (laughs) But you know what? I think I always was one of those kids that preferred, you know, making my own things. You know, like I would build, I don't know, I I love to look through the catalog, you know, like the Sears and Robot catalog, and I'd see furniture in there and I'd try to make it, you know, I'd cut up cardboard and try to make it. So I think I was always kind of living in my imagination to a certain degree. And there is no one toy that really stands out. I mean, we had blocks, you know, things like that, but um, I didn't have a favorite toy that I, that I read. Well, it could be an activity as well. Yeah, like no, I would said. say reading, reading, reading probably was it. Yeah. That sounds pretty boring, but uh, that's what I like to do. When you went to the library as a kid, what kind of books would you gravitate towards? Oh, you know, I started out with picture books. In fact, when I was in second grade, I won an award in my second grade class. It wasn't an award that they normally had, but my teacher was so impressed because I'd read like 256 picture books. So they gave me the special award to Pam Grout, the reader or whatever. And, you know, again, they're just picture books. So it's not like they're, you know, big tomes or anything. But I've always liked to read. So I don't know. I used to read a lot of little uh, animal stories and I don't know, a little bit of everything. I loved mysteries, actually, when I was young. I can remember I tried to write a mystery book myself when I was in sixth grade. And basically, I think I just modeled it on some of these mysteries that I read. So I did like those. And I actually, when I was way back in second grade, I would make little books myself, you know, like I had one Patty the Penguin and I illustrated it and I wrote all about Patty the Penguin. And so I don't know. <laughs> I just always had this love affair with the words and books. Did, yeah. did, it, did your parents have to ever make you read or you just kind of naturally to fill time, you would just go find a book and sit down and read? Because that's a very unusual habit for a child. Really? That's so funny. See, to me, it was kind of normal. You know, okay, so you obviously didn't grow up in Kansas, <laughs> where there's a whole, not a whole <laughs> no, lot to do. <laughs> I did not. But I mean, I guess because some ways when you're reading a book, you're kind of going into this whole other world. And I think for a kid from Kansas, I wanted to, you know, see other worlds and go to other places. So when you're reading, like, for example, you read Harry Potter, you're kind of in the world of Hogwarts or whatever. So I think that's probably, I mean, it sounds boring and it, only I would be excited by it. But in my mind, I was, you know, traveling all over and doing all these different kind of things. So I think that's why 
I enjoyed that so much. I also like making snow sculptures, you know, like when it would snow and going sledding. I mean, I did all the normal kid stuff. Did you have siblings and uh, was your mom around as well? Yeah. Yeah. I'm the oldest. Now I have a sister that's two years younger. And then I have a brother who's four years younger. And my sister's now in Savannah, Georgia. And my brother is still in this actually. As little Pam, how would you have described your childhood? Was it pretty happy times? Yeah, I would say so. My parents divorced when I was 16. And I remember that shocking, like, wow, I didn't know this kind of thing happened again in Kansas, you know, a long time ago, that wasn't a real common thing. Now, of course it is. But no, I always thought my dad, again, he was the preacher. So we had a lot of free time. So he would play games with us in the backyard tag and kickball and all these different things. So I grew up just having a blast. Oh, that was a favorite thing. I loved kickball (laughs) when I was a kid. And we also had like high jumps. And because I was tall, I could always, you know, beat all the boys in high jumps. So that was kind of fun too. But there were always like kids around and we just played outside and I don't know, made forts and stuff like that. What was it like growing up as the child of the preacher? You know, everybody expects you to be a certain way. And even my dad, I mean, my dad was a really liberal, open-minded preacher, I would say, especially for the Methodist church, but there's still those old-fashioned ways of believing, you know, and I would say that breaking away from that fundamentalist background was, you know, one of the biggest changes in my life, and that probably started happening when I was in high school. It's like, wow, this story can't be true that I'm going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell, or not everybody else, but you know what I mean? That story just didn't make sense to me. You know, God is so loving. How could that possibly be? a true story. So I started questioning things. Then I got to college and just kind of went wild, you know, just kind of changed everything, particularly all my beliefs. I don't know if I changed them. They just evolved. You know, I still very much believe in this bigger force that, you know, a lot of people call God, but, you know, I did grow up, you know, believing in a pretty traditional type God. Again, I had to go to church every Sunday, you know, to be the preacher's kid and sit there on the front row. I don't know that I sat there in the front row, but you know what I mean? Like you're the kid, all the people in the congregation are watching you. One thing that was kind of cool, again, these were small towns in Kansas. So all the people knew us. Like when I had my tonsils taken out when I was four years old, I probably got more presents than anybody else because, you know, all the people from the church would bring me I don't know, a book or whatever they would bring me. So there was something really nice about growing up as a preacher's kid too, but you do, you know, there are a lot of expectations. And sometimes I can remember people wouldn't want to, oh, don't say that in front of her. She's a preacher's kid. I'm like, what? So, you know, you're just like anybody else, but people do kind of put you on some kind of pedestal or think you're different. So I grew up in a Methodist church in Alabama. Oh, and wow. I, I remember Sunday mornings being the most boring time I've ever <laughs> had in my entire life. I'm curious, with your dad as the actual preacher, was it interesting to you at all? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. 
For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Well, he was a dynamic speaker. He Mm kind of looked a little bit like Robert Redford. He had a convertible and he'd drive around. So I don't know. He just really did have some charisma. I think a lot of it depends on, you know, who the preacher is and what they're talking about. Because honestly, church can be the most boring thing in the world. And in fact, I don't regularly go to church anymore. But if I find a church that has a really good speaker, just like going to a, you know, workshop, somebody that's really good at conveying truths that, you know, you're interested in. So I've had some good experiences in church and my dad, I, you know, honestly, when I was a kid, I wasn't paying that much attention. You know, people in the church would sit beside me and they'd like take a pencil and they'd pencil in my fingernails, you know, just to kind of keep me quiet or whatever. So it wasn't like I was paying that much attention, but I I remember it being okay. You know, it was all right. Do you you remember his process? Like would he really practice or write on a Saturday? I remember, you know, my parents used to put us to bed kind of early, but Sometimes I can remember being awake and hearing my dad practicing a sermon to my mom. So I guess really, if I did hear any of the sermons, it might have been when I was laying in my bed wishing I was not in bed and listening to my dad give the sermon to my mom. And you guys, obviously, you didn't grow up with money because your dad wasn't probably paid Oh, very yeah. Much. No, we had we had no money whatsoever. In fact, my parents, were, I could hear, that's the other thing I could hear from the bedroom is them fighting about money. My dad just always believed in abundance and he'd, you know, always get a new car every year and all that. But we just didn't have it. I mean, preacher's salary, particularly in Kansas. I mean, very, very little money. You do get a parsonage. So they do provide your home, you know, so that we didn't have that kind of an expense. But yeah, no, we didn't, we didn't have any money. You know, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. My name's not Rockefeller. So I always knew that if I was going to do some of these dreams and these things I wanted to do with my life, I was going to have to create creative capital. And I talk about that, you know, in some of my books, that was what I was going to do to leave Kansas and to, you know, launch this bigger life that I wanted. And I, I didn't have any green capital or that kind of capital. I had to come up with creative capital. What did you see yourself becoming like as a teenager in Kansas? You know, I always wanted to, to write. <laughs> Again, you know, some people go, why'd you become a writer? I think anybody that reads a lot, you start thinking, you know, I could do this. And again, I started writing stories when I was in second grade. I wrote the mystery novel when I was in sixth grade. So I always sort of saw myself as a writer. In fact, in some ways, my arc isn't all that interesting because I've always been a writer of one form or another. I mean, I've been, you know, I worked for a newspaper. I've done a lot of different kinds of writing. But basically, that's all I've ever done is be a writer. If I had to suddenly find some new profession, I'd probably be in trouble. So journalism was a foregone conclusion that you were going to major in that in in college? I don't know that I thought so much about journalism, but something to do with writing. Mm. And that was just the only thing I knew to do with writing. 
You know, again, when you grow up in Kansas, you don't see, you're not exposed to a lot of different things. I mean, I could have been, what did I see in Kansas? The grocer or the, the preacher like my dad or whatever, you know, it's just, there's just not a lot of things that you see. I mean, nowadays with the internet, you get exposed to everything. Kids can, you know, dream of all kinds of different things. One thing we did do, my dad's family was from Texas and my mom's family was from Michigan. So we took a lot of trips in our little family station wagon. So I did always like to travel and I did always like, you know, see other places. But for the most part, I grew up in a little town and wasn't exposed to that many different things that I could do. So writing, I guess, seemed like a natural thing. And and writing, as far as I could tell, you had to be a journalist or whatever. So that was kind of, you know, what I decided to major in when I went to college. What did your parents think about that? You know, my parents divorced when I was 16. So I don't remember them being too involved in anything that I did, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, even before that, you know, we were off doing our own thing, you know, kids running around the neighborhood. However, I do think my mom, you know, computers were coming out at that time. I mean, they'd been out a little bit, but she's like, you need to be a computer programmer. That's a safe career. So I don't think they thought writing, my mom particularly, my dad, like I said, he wasn't around that much, but I don't think she thought it was a very safe career at all. So she might have wanted me to do something else. So then you studied journalism and you began interning, I believe, at the Kansas City Star? Well, I actually first had a job at the Manhattan Mercury. So Manhattan, Kansas is the town where Kansas State University is located. So I went to college at Kansas State University. And then after I graduated, I started working for the Manhattan Mercury and I wrote features. And that was such a lucky break for me because when you're a writer and you're trying to break in, you really do need to have clips. Like in almost any other field, they just have to take your word for it. But with writing, you have things to show people like, oh, here's something I wrote. And they go, oh, yeah, okay, you can write. So I got very lucky and got that job with the Manhattan Mercury you know, so that I got a lot of clips and then I, you know, got the, the job with the Kansas City Star, but not immediately. I first, I edited a magazine for Worlds of Fun, which is this theme park in Kansas City owned by Lamar Hunt that used to own the Chiefs. So I, I, I worked there and I was like a PR person. So I wrote press releases and I edited the magazine and I got to drive around in this white car with a balloon on the side, you know, because Worlds of Fun was the balloon theme, you know whatever. So that, and all the kids in the neighborhood thought I was so cool. Cause I mean, little kids like, Oh, she's from worlds of fun or whatever. But anyway, that was my first job out of college. And then I went to write for the Kansas city star right after that. Why do you suppose they chose you out of all the other people applying for those jobs? You know, I've always kind of wondered that because with the, the world's a fun job. I mean, like 135 people applied. So I was really kind of blown away that I got the job. I think they soon were sorry that they hired me. <laughs> I've never been a real corporate kind of person. You know, I would wear flip-flops to work and I would, I don't know. I And, and you know, you think theme park, how corporate is that? But it was a corporation owned by Lamar Hunt. And I just never really fit in with that too much. I've always longed to kind of do my own thing. And I would say that most of my life, I've done my own thing. I've done it the way I wanted to do it as opposed to the way you're supposed to do it. Not that I haven't followed a lot of rules in my life. I mean, I certainly have, but I was always aware that there could be this other way. And I was always kind of seeking that other way. But you obviously are pretty good at selling yourself as well. Yeah, I suppose I can be at times. <laughs> he 
depending on the day. Yes, I, I, I think so. I mean, I did always like, you know, to be a freelance writer, which, you know, I ended up becoming, you have to be pitching all the time. You're constantly sending off query letters. I mean, now, you know, you can do it on, online, but it used to be, you know, I'd get these self-addressed stamped envelopes and I'd send off, you know, a bunch of, you know, article ideas to different editors and, you know, got so many rejections. But I just kept trying because that's what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, and I don't know. I think I'm just naive, Light. I think I'm just naive enough to think, okay, somehow I could do it. This kid from Honeytown, Kansas, you know, travel all over the world and write for these big, you know, magazines. And and I did. I, I was able to do a lot of that because I somehow believed I could do it. And the Kansas City Star has a legacy of hiring Walt Disney and Ernest Hemingway. And I'm sure you knew that at the time. And I was curious, what did your idea of success look like when you were working for the Kansas City Star? I think that was success, you know, to get to get the job there. I was really happy to do that. In fact, it used to feel like a party there <laughs> because I don't know, it was just all the other reporters and we were all kind of fun and and we joked around a lot. So I enjoyed working there. And in fact, the only reason I left, I think, did I get fired from that job? Maybe. <laughs> I have a history of getting fired from jobs. But I think maybe I was going to Europe or something. You know, I was going to go URL around Europe. And I think maybe that's why I quit. I'm trying to remember if that's how it all went down. <laughs> but yeah. but it was a great job. It was fun while, you know. And we I was writing features, you know, not anything real news oriented, just features, you know, something that could run tomorrow or could run in three months, basically, you know, maybe a, an interview with somebody, a person, you know, like a, a biography about some interesting person, or it could be, I don't know, about a restaurant. I did restaurant reviews for a while. So just, you know, various things like features, what they call features, lighter, lighter stuff. Did you see yourself becoming a novelist or a New York Times bestselling author, or you're just going to keep writing, you're going to become this really high level journalist? I did always want to be a New York Times bestselling author. I mean, I, that was always in the back of my mind. You know, back when, you know, you were doing lots of affirmations, <laughs> I would do that affirmation. I was going to be a bestselling author. I don't know, maybe more one day at a time. I guess I just wanted to make a living on my wit and my craft. You know, I wanted to make a living doing what I wanted to do. And I love to write. I mean, that's what I love to do. Yeah, I don't know what I saw myself at that point. I mean, I always thought I'd write a book. And I did actually write a few novels that never got published. So I have dabbled in other. I mean, I'm just all about being as creative as possible and trying a lot of different things. I mean, I've written screenplays. I've written plays. I've written novels. I've done a lot of different things. I guess my biggest goal or what I, how I see myself is always being able to create and somehow eke out a living, you know, being able to create. I never had these big grandiose dreams like, oh, I want to live in a giant house and drive a fancy car. I never was really driven by anything material too much. I love experiences. I love traveling. You know, I became a travel writer. And that to me is everything. You know, I've gotten to do all those cool million dollar type things, but only because, you know, as a travel writer. So, but just the actual materiality stuff just never interested me. I wasn't driven in that way at all. So the travel writing started in your 20s, correct? Yeah, I believe that'd be about right. Probably late 20s. What I kind of fell into travel writing, actually. I always loved to travel. And I would often write stories. Like I went to Nicaragua to pick coffee and I wrote a story about it. Oh, I went to Jamaica, you know, and I did a story about staying in a villa there. So those were travel stories, but I didn't, you know, think of them as travel stories. 
But I had sent a pitch off to Ladies Home Journal and I was just taught it was the stupidest pitch ever. I mean, it's kind of amazing. But it was like, oh, I'm a travel or I'm a freelance writer and I've done this and I've done that. And I mentioned those two things. So she calls me up and she says, Oh, are you a travel writer? And you never say no to an editor. It's like, oh, oh, yes, I'm a travel <laughs> writer. She goes, Oh, uh, well, where are you going next? Well, I wasn't going anywhere, but a friend of mine was going to Tampa. So I said, Oh, I'm going to Tampa. So she goes, okay, I need 750 words or whatever it was. I'll pay you a thousand, whatever it was. So I call my friend, I go, can I go with you to Tampa? So I went with him to Tampa, wrote that story, and then ended up writing a whole bunch of stories for them. And then found out there was this profession called travel writing where, I mean, you get invited to go all over. I mean, I've been to, I've been on the best safaris in Africa. I've been, you know, every continent except for Antarctica. And I was once invited there too. I can't remember exactly what happened. But anyway, so I just started doing travel writing and I literally have gotten to go everywhere and stay in like five star hotels. And, you know, oftentimes I'll be at a place and I'll look over and see some celebrity golfing or, or whatever, you know, I'm me, kid from Kansas. So anyway, I've gotten to do some really cool stuff. What was your spiritual foundation like when you were in your late 20s and doing all the traveling and the travel writing? I've always believed there was something bigger and that this something bigger loved us. I had to give up kind of that judgment. You know, when I was growing up, there was a little bit of judgment there. Like, oh, you've got to follow these rules. And so that was a little hard to break away from. And I can remember the exact date when, or not the exact date, but kind of the time when someone had said something to me, like she brought up, oh, don't you feel kind of guilty about that? And I, I realized, no, I don't. And up until that point, I think I would have, because, you know, I might have said something about God or something that she didn't think, this friend of mine didn't think was appropriate. And I remember very clearly thinking, you know what, that doesn't bother me anymore, because I believe what other people are telling you is kind of somehow they're reflecting back to you what's in your head, you know? So I realized, wow. And then from that point on, I haven't ever felt that need to follow all those rules that I grew up with anymore. But as far as what was my spiritual practice, I I think that there was this loving, benevolent force that really does want to bless us, that wants to, that wants to interact with us and wants to guide us. So I always believed in that. And so when I would, you know, become a freelance writer, I did, I appointed God, you know, I still kind of call it God, the CEO of my career. <laughs> so I always kind of wanted help from that bigger thing. I guess I was always really aware that my own resources were kind of limited. <laughs> so I needed the help of the bigger thing. For a long time, I have visualized myself doing some of these things that I want to do. As I've gotten older, more mature in my spirituality, I've come to trust what the dude, as I often call it, wants more than what I think I might want. So I often just trust that I'm going to be given, you know, good things, or I'm going to be given cool things to do. And it usually works out. So long before I got involved in a conscious spiritual path, back when I was like, maybe 16 or 17, I had an experience in the ocean. When I went to the ocean for one of the first times, and I got caught in a riptide. And I didn't know what that was. And I heard this inner voice saying to me, swim to the side. And I'm wondering, did you, before you got into your conscious path, did you have any crazy experiences or coincidences that made you think, whoa, there's something else happening here? Oh, I love that story. Wow. Nothing that's that, because to me, that's like a huge story. A voice will speak to you. I mean, one of the things I wrote about in East Squared, there were a couple of times I felt like I heard God's voice. 
And one of the times was I was worrying about money. And I, I remember hearing God saying, you don't need to worry about money. It's all taken care of. I mean, it just felt like it was something different than me. So I did feel like I got that guidance. And then one time, and this is something that, you know, I really kind of wonder about today, but my daughter was having, had a high fever. She was really small. And I was just, it was like, I was up at three o'clock and she was running 103 degree fever or 100, whatever it was. And I was really scared. And I remember God's voice saying to me, I didn't give you this great gift just to take it away. <laughs> and of course, the irony then is that later, I don't know that God took her away, but you know, obviously she is off now dancing in the cosmos somewhere instead of being here in the, the physical plane. So, so a couple of things like that, but I love that because, you know, obviously that, that makes you so sure that you've got a purpose because you were guided to do this thing to save your life because you could have lost it at that moment, you know? Mm, so mm. that's pretty cool. So I wish I had a good story like that, but unfortunately. Well, you know, it's things like that because you mentioned, uh, I think in one of your blog posts, how being in journalism school inspired you to question the source of things. And I know growing up as a preacher's daughter and having that sort of indoctrination about Jesus and what you mentioned earlier, which is the only way to really be saved is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and right, all of those things right. that we learned growing up. It makes you really question all of that. And maybe maybe when life just gets busy and you're in your 20s and you know 30s, you don't really think about it as much, but maybe there are some things that can occur in the background. Or when you are presented with this sort of more esoteric experience, it makes you wonder, is that legit? Because the whole world is telling you basically that all you need to know can be perceived in the five senses. And so you were invited to a meet and greet that led to a month-long experience at Esalen. Can you talk a little bit about that story and when oh, it happened? Yeah, that was awesome. I don't remember the meet and greet necessarily, but I think I was running away from some broken heart. You know, I had a relationship <laughs> that didn't work out. And so I decided to go to Esalen. And just absolutely fell in love there. Well, I fell in love with Esalen and I, I loved my month that I spent there. You studied A Course in Miracles. Yes. And that was, it wasn't because I necessarily wanted to study Course in Miracles. It was that I wanted to do this month long program. And I think there were maybe two possibilities there. And Julian Silverman, who was a longtime Gestalt teacher at Esalen and Course in Miracles later on in his life. He was teaching it. So I just signed up for that one. So that's the one I ended up doing. And I don't think it was the first time I'd heard of Course in Miracles, though. So I was kind of basically familiar with it, but it did uh, sort of get me started on that path. At the end of that 30-day work study, what was your experience with Course in Did you see it as something you were going to do the rest of your life? Or was it just well, like this thing, you had a fun time? I did buy a copy of a course, probably the first copy that I had. Maybe I already had one going in. I don't remember that for sure. But, you know, I've been a dabbler. I think Course in Miracles, I keep coming back to, but I've always tried a lot of different things, you know, everything from tapping to Byron Katie work to, you know, I've done a lot of different things. I think I've just always identified as a seeker. <laughs> for whatever reason, I just always would go back to A Course in Miracles you know, I would continue to do Course in Miracles year after year, at the same time doing other things as well. Were you living in Connecticut at the time? Uh, when I was at Esalen or? After you left Esalen, were you going back no, to Connecticut? No, not at that time. I was in Connecticut when I got pregnant with my daughter. 
and then I, I came back and that's when I really started taking a course of miracles seriously. It was when I was, you know, driving across the country, seven months pregnant, not knowing where I was going to go, didn't work out with her dad. And I was literally like, you know what? Something's not right here. I need to make a few changes. I would say at that point, even though I'd done Course in Miracles and been aware of it, I started to really follow it in earnest and to really turn things over to this other voice that hopefully would have a better plan for my life than the one that I was coming up with. I want to go back over that moment in a little bit more detail, but can you just talk about for people who haven't heard of the Course in Miracles, A Course in Miracles, can you just talk, give a synopsis of what that is? Yeah, it's a channeled work and it has a pretty interesting history. It's been around for about 50 years. And there were a couple professors at Columbia University and the head of the department, I think it was medical psychology. There was just so much infighting and department squabbling. You know, everybody kind of hated everybody, kind of how it is in our country right now. You know, just things weren't working out. And one day, his name was Bill Thetford. He threw his hands in the air and says, there has got to be a better way. And almost as if him saying that, his research assistant, Helen Chuckman, started, this voice started talking to her, this is the better way. This is a course in miracles. And so the two of them worked together for seven years, and she would get these voices, these whatever, and then he, and she'd tell him to him, and he'd type it. So it was almost like part of their, you know, their assignment was to work together. And they gave him a lot of things. That would help their own relationship and that would help the relationship in the department. And a lot of that stuff was taken out of the course, but there was a lot of stuff in there about forgiveness and about changing how we see things. And that most of what we believe is upside down. It's not even true. You know, we just see this big illusion. You know, we're so invested in the ego and and this identity that we have as these separate individuals instead of, you know, this one oneness that's really the truth of the way the world is. So anyway, these two guys channeled it. And I don't even know if they were doing it for themselves, whatever, but for seven years they did this. And then they typed up a bunch of copies and they gave it to, I don't know, a hundred friends or something. And people read it. Oh my gosh, this needs to be turned into a book. And so the foundation for inner peace then did publish this book. And then I don't know, just little by little, it started taking off, I guess you could say. But like you said, for people that haven't heard of it, I don't know that it's taken off yet, but uh, because maybe a lot of people haven't even heard of it. But one thing that is kind of interesting, if you go to most spiritual like conventions or circles or whatever, and you ask people, how many people here have a copy of A Course in Miracles? You know, most people that are in kind of the spiritual circles, you know, will have a copy. But then you ask the follow-up question, how many of you have actually read it? And all but one or two hands will go down because it's really dense. It's really hard to read. I mean, I think I read it for seven years, went through the lessons for seven years and had no idea what I was even doing or what they were talking about. I mean, it really is a complicated thing. I mean, on one hand, The Course in Miracles is so simple. It's just so different than the way we do life. You know, to do life the way Course in Miracles suggests is just completely different. So it's not hard. It's just real different because we believe so strongly in this material world. We believe so strongly that there's scarcity and that we need to protect ourselves. And, you know, because we believe this so strongly to go a different way and to say, I'm going to choose a different path. There's a lot of forces that are going to try to reel you back in to believe those other things that pretty much is the dominant paradigm that everybody believes is a fact. 
Speaking of, of messages being received, you, so now in Connecticut, you were invited to a psychic reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted you to tell that story before we get into the fact that you were pregnant. Yeah. So I had just finished a rebirthing program. Again, I was kind of a gypsy, you know, traveling all over, um, was freelancing. You just have your computer, you can go anywhere. So I was living in Connecticut, do, did a six month rebirthing training. And it's a, a breathing process that I learned and that I got certified in. But when it was over, again, I'm a freelancer, so I had no real need to move anywhere real fast. So I kind of hung around for a while. And a friend of mine was going to this psychic reading thing. And it was a psychic that had come in from California. And I thought, oh, I'll go along. Or she invited me to go along. And so this psychic, you know, goes around the room and tells each person what their next purpose in life. And she got to me and she goes, oh, this is interesting. She says, your next purpose in life is motherhood. And we walked out of that. And I said to my friend, that is the biggest piece of baloney I've ever heard. You know, there is no way. But within a few weeks, I discovered that indeed I was pregnant. So it's like, wow, that's psychic. Uh, maybe it was a little bit better than I, than I thought she was. So yeah, so I got pregnant. And then things, you know, didn't work out with the dad. So I ended up leaving when I was seven months pregnant, leaving Connecticut and traveling. <laughs> Originally, I thought I was going to Breckenridge, Colorado, but I got back to the Midwest, you know, into the area that I had lived in. My old boss said, why don't you, you know, stay here with me for a while? So I did. And so here I am still to this day. <laughs> you described that as being kicked out. You said you were kicked out. We were struggling. All We were living together. We were struggling. And he wanted me to stay in Connecticut and get my own place, you know, because I had moved into his place. Right. And I thought, you know, why would I stay here in Connecticut? Because all the people, there were 20 people in my six-month program, and most of them had dispersed, you know, because the program was over. So they weren't around. And the whole time I was there in that six-month program, we just did so much together. It wasn't like I was out making friends. I mean, I was with those 20 people. And the father of my daughter, who happens to be from New Zealand, he um, was one of the trainers in the program, one of the head rebirther guys that did it. So anyway, we kind of had gotten together in Greece because our whole group went together to Greece. And so we kind of got together. And then after the program, we just stayed together. But then, it, like I said, I got pregnant and it just wasn't working out. So he, basically, yeah, he kicked me out. He goes, you know what? This isn't working. You, I, I want you to stay here, but not in my home. So you're going to go find your own place. So at that point, I thought, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm taking off. And it was July and you didn't have an air conditioner and your, no, your car was, had faulty air conditioner or something like that. You're by yeah, yourself. It working. It was very hot. I had all my possessions stuffed in this little blue Toyota and it was like a hundred degrees out, you know, so I had to drive really fast. You know, when you're pregnant too, you're even hotter than normal. So I'm driving across <laughs> the country, sweating and trying to keep moving. So, you know, so the heat wouldn't get me. I what was your income some, like at the time? Were you did you have money saved up or what was your Well, I was situation? freelancing. I mean, that's the thing. Most people would think I'm crazy because I've always been daring enough to to, to not have a regular job and to freelance. So I would always have to be pitching stories and trying to get some new assignment. And when I first was pregnant, some of my friends thought, you know, you probably ought to get a regular job and, and you know settle down. You know, it might have been wise advice, but as it turns out now, it really, I just continued to do what I love to do and it ended up you know, being the right path for me. So <laughs> again, I'm lucky with my career because I've always been able to do what I like to do. Were there any A Course in Miracle lessons that kind of helped you through that time that, that you remember that stuck with you as you were maybe driving back out and reestablishing yourself in Kansas? One of the big things is 
when thoughts come up, troubling thoughts, you know, you want to be mad at somebody, you want to say, poor me, you ask the Holy Spirit to help me see this differently. So one of the main things is to help me see this world differently because the way I'm seeing the world right now is I am broke, I am pregnant, life sucks. <laughs> so I needed help seeing the world differently. So literally you, you appeal to this higher source and say, help me see this differently. And little by little, as I gave up the reins to the world has to be the way I think it is, then little by little things started changing. But, you know, there were times when I was pretty broke. Somehow or another, I would always get a new assignment and some new money supply would come in somehow. Do you remember like having a strong faith or trust that that was going to happen at that time? Or were you like on the brink of your insanity um, yeah, waiting yeah, till the 11th I mean, hour? There were moments I'd be really afraid, but I, I never did go get a job. No, there were a couple of times I did apply for jobs. But just about the time that I get offered a job, you know, I'd get some new assignment, you know, from say travel and leisure or some, you know, big publication that I really wanted to write for. So I felt like I was always given guidance, you know, in those times I would get really scared and try to get a job. So something would always end up working out always. Like, you know, in 2008, when everything changed, you know, the internet, I mean, books started, I mean, people, they weren't, people weren't buying books, magazines were dying, shrinking, you know, there's wasn't work for writers. That was back in 2008. And this is about the time Taz is going to college. And I'm thinking, what have I done? You know, even after all this time, like, wow, what have I done? But surprisingly enough, some guy that I didn't even know, he was from California. He calls me up. He wants me to read his book about, he. I don't know, for some reason it had Kansas in it. So he asked me to read it. And he had made a bunch of money. He had a publishing company. So he paid me a bunch of money to read his book. Triple A called me and they wanted me to do this travel webinar. You know, this is back when webinars were kind of new. So always, just about the time when I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? Something would always happen for me. So again, I think my naivety kept me pounding away and something would always come up that made it okay to keep freelancing and keep, you know, pursuing my, my great love of writing. And so your beautiful Taz was born October 8th, 1993. When she was a baby, there was a, an affirmation that you would repeat every day. Do you remember what it was by heart? Hopefully I can repeat it. You know, I don't say it anymore. But into my will, let their pour strength. Into my feeling, let their flow warmth. Into my thinking, let their shine light. That I may nurture this child, Tasman King Grout, with enlightened purpose caring with heart's love and bringing wisdom to all things. So that was kind of my appeal to the universe, my appeal to the bigger thing. This is what I want to do. I want to be a worthy, you know, I want to do right by this beautiful child that decided to bless me, you know, with her presence. Did you channel that or did you find that somewhere and adopt it? No, it was an, I've always been big into Waldorf education. Are you familiar with that? Uh-huh. Rudolf Steiner. Yeah. Yeah. So I had read a book. I don't know if it was specifically a Waldorf book, but that affirmation was in there. So I might've changed it around a little bit, but basically that was because the Waldorf education, you know, believes your emotions, your heart, your thinking. I mean, those three work together and that's why it's a beautiful educational system because it's more than just learning facts and figures. I mean, there's such a much bigger thing than just the intellect, you know? But in our world, in our culture, we're just so, 
I don't know, the intellect is, is everything. And, and it's so not true. But so anyway, Waldorf's just a way of touching into these other areas that in my opinion, are so much more important and bigger and, you know, more valuable than the intellect. Taz is three years old. You're g- getting pickup jobs here and there. You decide to self-publish a book, Jumpstart Your Metabolism. Why that book? Why that time? How did well, that go? I had, you know, this breathing program that I'd done out in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. When we were there, you know, there was this woman that had lost a whole bunch of weight. You know, she was doing a lot of breathing because you know, a lot of breathing practice and she'd lost all this weight. And then I started hearing these other stories. Oh, Gay Hendricks had talked about how he'd lost a lot of weight when he started breathing. So I kept hearing all these different things. And I've always been a relatively, I mean, I hadn't had to worry too much about my weight. But but anyway, I, I started doing research about this. Wow, this is a real connection. You know, most people do not breathe properly. Most people take in about a third of the oxygen that they're capable of taking in. So I started doing a lot of research. And so I ended up writing that book. And to be honest, I really enjoyed it. And I did like it. But I also wrote it partly because I thought it would sell. You know, everybody's always wanting to lose weight, right? I mean, that seemed like something that could be big. And I self-published it. And, you know, I sold it. And I, I was on Howard Stern's show, which is so funny, you know, Howard Stern. And here I'm this person from Kansas and you know how he is, you know, show us your boobs or whatever. <laughs> I went ahead and played along. I didn't do that, but I played along with Howard Stern. And you know, his very large male audience, I sold hundreds of books from, you know, being on Howard Stern, which was kind of funny. Again, one of those things that just happened to work out for me. And I got quite a bit of publicity about that book. So that was how I was able to, to self-publish it. And eventually I was on a talk show in New York and I was there with this guy and his publicist was there. And the publicist said to me, she saw my little segment on this show. She said, hey, would you be interested in selling your book? You know, you had self-published to a publisher. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe. I think she was with Bantam or something. But before I, you know, sold them the rights, I didn't go with Bantam in the end, but I got ended up getting an agent, a literary agent. And then she ended up putting it up for auction and then, you know, eventually sold it to Simon & Schuster, one of the divisions of Simon & Schuster. And that book's still out there selling. So it's kind of funny. But but I was interested in breathing and I had taken this whole training. So I knew quite a bit about breathing. But the kind of breathing I did was rebirthing. It's sort of a way of getting in touch with patterns in your life and trying to overcome patterns in your life. So it wasn't specifically, the breathing we learned wasn't specifically about losing weight, but I just sort of discovered this connection there. And then I figured that would be, and in fact, in some ways, if you read that book, it's really about the importance of breathing and using the hook about jumpstart your metabolism is sort of just a way to get people to learn more about the breath. Because again, everybody wants to lose weight. And if they think they can do it in an easy way, they'll, they'll buy the book. So, so anyway, yeah. That was back in the day before create space and all these kind of right. no, self-publishing. I had so you had a printer and publish it. I didn't right. yeah. Nowadays it would be so easy to do that. And you have to you I have to pre-order like five thousand books off the top and yes. store them in yes. your garage and all of that. Right. Yeah. So it's so much easier now, you know, with create space and all that. In fact you can only, you know, you can do it as print on demand. So you don't even have to have but yeah, no, I had like five thousand books and then I had to reorder. I mean I did sell thanks to Howard Stern and I, I did a lot of radio interviews and things like that. For that book. So it did. Um, yeah, it sold pretty well. Were you fulfilling them yourself? No, I hired a fulfillment house and I found out that this fulfillment house wasn't really paying me <laughs> for all the books because a lot of people <laughs> would tell me, oh yeah, we bought your book and I never. 
But anyway, so no, they did that. And eventually, I guess I got it back and I did start fulfilling it myself. I can remember when Taz was little, I'd be running to the post office, you know, with this bookstore here and this bookstore there and, you know, sending all these things out. But again, I've always been a DIY person. I've always kind of just done it myself, you know, from creating my website to doing whatever. I did a little recycle book that I published on brown paper grocery bags. You know, Taz and I kind of worked on that one together. Well, she did the artwork for it. So yeah, I just always <laughs> figured, okay, I can do that. That was recycle this book, right? You recycle this book. Yeah. 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 Awesome. You had a travel blog shortly after that as well. You were like well, one of the I early had, bloggers on the internet. Right. So I, I did a travel a blog. I think I called it Now Where Was I? Right. But I had a column called Now Where Was I? And I was mostly, rather than trying to blog about travel, I was mostly trying to sell travel articles. I really wanted to continue traveling. So I was constantly pitching. You know, the thing about being a writer, whatever you're interested in, all you have to do is get a pitch and get an assignment. And then you can go find out about it. Somebody pays you to go find out about it or go whatever place you want to go to. So I actively, even though travel writing isn't the highest paying of writing, again, it satisfied that urge I have to go and explore and be an adventure. So I was really pitching travel stories big time. And then the blog, again, back in 2008, like I was saying before, when everything crashed and burned as far as in the writing business, that's when I um, I had done three books for National Geographic. And they wanted to pay me, like they wanted me to do a fourth book, but they wanted to pay me a lot less again because nobody was buying books, blah, blah, blah. So at that point, I didn't take their offer. And I did start a blog that georgeclooneysleptheer.com. It's about um, kind of a takeoff <laughs> on George Washington slept here. You know, people used to always say that. So that's kind of what it was. So I thought I, you know, I do, I do a blog again. I, you know, okay, I'll try this. I'll try that. Throwing lots of, I always say that I'm always sending boats out there. A lot of them never come back, <laughs> but every mm-hmm. now and then just enough of them come back that, you know, keeps me going. Who was your biggest supporter at that time? Who would be so excited when you would talk about, Hey, I got this book, recycled this book here. And well, probably you know, I'm on Howard yeah, Stern. You know? and- Although I don't know how excited as a kid about their mom's successes, <laughs> but you know, she would be excited. I've always had friends, you know, that, that have been supportive and I've always had various boyfriends and different people that would support me. I don't mean support me financially, but I mean, support me in, in whatever projects I was wanting to do. So yeah, I've had a, a long stream of people that have supported me in various ways over the years. Talk a little bit about the lead up to God doesn't have bad hair days, because that was basically E squared before yeah. E squared. Yeah, that was the so, funniest thing. I was sure that was going to be it. You know, it's like, oh, wow, what a great idea. I had an agent that pitched it and they loved it. But what happened, you know, the title, God doesn't have bad hair days. They ended up hiring a fundamentalist Christian publicist. I'm like, this book is so not <laughs> fundamentalist Christian. So, you know, but anyway, I don't know what happened to it, but I often think, and I've said this a lot, you know, my frequency, if you want to talk about that, like this idea that we're resonating on a particular frequency and we're collapsing the wave from all these infinite possibilities out there. And so I think maybe I wasn't ready for the big time because that book basically was the book that became E squared, that became, you know, translated into 40 languages, New York Times, number one bestseller. So I maybe just wasn't ready yet. Um, my frequency maybe wasn't in that place where I could, you know, accept all that good or, or whatever. And also I thought too, you know, Taz 
went off to college when E squared came out. So maybe when she was younger and God doesn't have bad hair days, I always thought, I mean, I used to, you know, do the affirmations. Oprah will read God doesn't have bad hair days and I will be on Oprah. Show. You know, everybody wants to be an Oprah, right? So I was doing those affirmations and wanting that, but you know, it didn't happen. But one thing I did do when it didn't happen, it went out of print quite soon thereafter. The few people that read it loved it. So, I mean, I did get some good feedback, but it just never took off. In fact, my editor at that publishing house said, I don't understand this. Your book is just like The Secret because it was about, it came out about the same time as the movie The Secret. She says, everybody's crazy about The Secret. Your book's the same. Why is nobody after? I said, well, you hired a Christian publicist for one thing. I didn't say that to her, but that was kind of what I was thinking. But anyway, I didn't get too upset about it. I just like, okay, I went on and I, again, sent out more boats. I ended up doing the three books for National Geographic and didn't fret over it too much. Just, and then I decided, you know, I really love that book. I still think it's a good book. And so then I repackaged it as E squared. And I took out one of the experiments and I um, sent it off to Hay House and, and they liked it and decided to publish it. Before we get to that part, you mentioned that it was the almost the exact same book as E squared, minus the page that they the reader had to rip out. Oh. <laughs> so, so in order to, to write that book, obviously you had to become very familiar with these nine experiments, right? Which means you probably started with maybe 20 experiments and then you maybe combined them a bit. I just, I'm thinking, you know, as a writer, cause I did the same thing with my first book, which I self-published called the inner gym, which ended up being six exercises, but the first draft was 24 exercises. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I thought, nobody's going to do 24 exercises. Let me pare this down a bit. So I'm just curious, how did you come across these particular experiments? And literally, like, were you standing in your living room with coat hangers? And you, or like, how did, how did all that evolve? Hey, my favorite video of the coat hangers is still the one you did. I mean, that was like such a cool thing. I was just so thrilled with that. That was really cool. Okay, what happened with the book? Okay, so I wanted to talk about these spiritual principles that I felt represented the way the world was, you know, that there is this force out there. So that's kind of what the do to buy. That's the first experiment. So rather than just have a bunch of experiments, I had principles that I wanted people to prove. Because as I said in the book, you know, we all know this stuff, our thoughts create a reality. You know, there's this force out there that loves us, blah, blah, blah. You know, asking you shall receive, you know, way back in the Bible. <laughs> but the problem is it's mostly a theory. People aren't putting it into practice. I mean, they just don't. I mean, people read self-help books and they never do them. I mean, honestly, it's sad to say, but it's really, that's what happens. What I did, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to trick people <laughs> into doing this. So I set up these principles in terms of scientific experiments, and I mean, I had a thesis, I had everything just like a real scientific experiment, including the fact that if it didn't work, you could feel free to write this off. Rather than have all these experiments, I had principles I wanted people to discover worked, you know, that we are energy, like, you know, that wand one was that everything is energy and our thoughts are putting out energy. And so, you know, that's why you hold it and you have the thoughts and the wands do, you know, various things depending on what you're thinking. And talk about a way of really proving it. I mean, that was like so, so visible. I mean, you can see it happening right in front of your eyes. I mean, one of the things that's been so cool about this book is I get these emails from people. I start with, you are never going to believe this. And of course, I believe it because I, you know, that's what I teach. That's what I believe. But I have heard so many, 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 many stories. I don't know if you ever read EQ, but I did talk about some of the, in fact, I had a chapter called, well, duh. And I had a, you know, just talking about some of the stories that people sent to me about what happened to them when they did the experiment. So 
Had you market tested the principles slash experiments for God doesn't have bad hair days before? No. Like, were you Me? running to your friends like, hey, you got to try this out before I put it oh, in? Oh, well, you know, I was going to a unity church and some of the YOUers, Youth of Unity, they were doing some of the experiments. Like the, they, had, they were in the wire hangers. I had various people doing things, but not a, not big. I mean, I kind of laugh when people go, did you do market research? I'm so not a market research person. <laughs> you know, if I ever did market research, I'd wonder what was happening. You know, how, how did I get talked into doing this or whatever? I mean, a publisher, they, if they want to do market research, that's fine. But doubtful, I'd be doing a lot of market research. So then that was your third book? Well, E-Square was my 16th book, but God doesn't have bad hairs. Okay, so I did three books for a seminar company that they would sell at the back of the room. You know, one was on okay. mentoring, how to be a mentor, how to be more creative. Right. What was the third one? It was called. But that was, that was in your first like handful of books. God doesn't have bad right. hair days. Those three books. And then I did the self-published breathing book. And then I did what came next art and soul. And it was about creativity and spirituality. And then the next one was God doesn't have bad hair days. I believe, I think that's how it went down. Seven years later, you decided I need to put this out in the world again, which is a pretty interesting thing because I know a lot of publishers don't like to republish material that's already been published. So how did you talk your, your, your way into that one? I mean, they didn't pay me very much for it. I don't know what they thought it was going to do. I mean, it, it was Hay House, you know, so they did pay me for it. I know Reed Tracy, who's the publisher of Hay House, he used to tell people he'd love to talk about me in these writers workshops. Oh, Pam, blah, 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 blah. And then she had this big hit, but what do you, you know, I was already a writer. I mean, that was my 16th book. I'd already written for lots and lots of big magazines. But in his mind, he likes to show how, you know, you could start really small and then this book can become a bestseller. It wasn't quite exactly the way it went down. But so they didn't pay me much. I don't know if they had real big expectations. But for whatever reason, that book went wild on social media. You know, I didn't really promote it that much. I started blogging because Hay House had sent me a book called Platform. And it was like, you need to have a platform and that way people will read your book. So I did start blogging and I hadn't really blogged up until that point. I thought, why, you know, I get paid to write. Why would I want to put a blog out there? <laughs> but I started doing it, found out I really loved it. And I mean, it ended up leading, leading to all these other books too. But so I did that, but for whatever reason, I mean, it wasn't even me. Again, God, my CEO said, okay. And, and then it just took off and it was all other people writing about it, talking about their experiments and loving it. I mean, you did that video. I mean, that kind of thing is how it, took out word of that. In fact, Hay House had, didn't have any expectation for like about a month there. People couldn't get the book. I mean, they had only published what 5,000 or whatever. It wasn't very much. And I mean, people were just going nuts over this book. And so they had to hustle around really fast and, and get it out there. And then by the summer, it came out in January, by the summer, it was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And it could have been probably a lot more had they been prepared, but they just didn't know it was going to take off like that. So I guess you ask, how did I get them to do it? They didn't put much investment in it. It wasn't like they thought, oh, well, you know, they just thought, well, you know, it's kind of a good idea. Let's try it. I, I don't even know why. In fact, Hay House says you can't send things over the transom, which is what they call without an agent. And I've had agents before, but I just sent it to them without an agent. And even though it says you can't do that, they picked it and they bought it. Where were you when you found out you were the New York Times number one bestseller? Oh, Wow. I think I might have been in the Cook Islands actually at the time I found out because you know your publisher they're like, they get real excited when you get on that list they're excited so they call you up and go oh guess what you're on the list 
then the next week they call, oh, guess what? You've moved up, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, when you get number one, then they get super excited. In fact, the New York Times even wrote a little tiny piece about it, you know, in their, their book review. So I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. So I don't know, I was traveling a lot then. So I'd hear about these various things, you know, when I was out doing my travel ride and I'd be, you know, some island out in the Pacific. And, oh, okay. Did you feel any different though, as, as a writer? Did you feel like you had finally been validated or did you just kind of feel the same? I would say it's some kind of a validation, but I don't know that I feel all that different, really. <laughs> Again, my goal is just to keep writing, keep creating, keep, you know, living in the world of my imagination. So yeah, that's really cool. And it certainly took off the need that I have to write. You know, I mean, I was motivated. Like I said, I wrote that breathing book because that was a way I could probably make some money. But it free, you know, once I did make some money and I didn't have to worry about money so much anymore, it kind of frees you up to be able to write what you really want to write about. And for the most part, I did anyway. But, you know, I didn't throw out those projects that, oh, this one will make a lot of money. But the thing mm. about it is I found that whatever I'm writing about, because again, I've wrote, I've written hundreds of articles over the year. And sometimes people will assign me an article. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound that interesting. But once you start interviewing people that love that topic, people that are experts in that topic, it usually ends up being interesting because, you know, people love that thing you're talking to them about. So almost anything's interesting if you're talking to people that love it. So I have come to find out that any topic is is interesting. But when I would pitch stories, mostly I'd try to pitch stories that I was already interested in. That's why I wrote spiritual books, because that's the kind of stuff I was interested in. I love, you know, metaphysics and learning about, I don't know, affirmation. You know, that rebirthing training that I did out in Connecticut, in addition to the breathing technique, we also did a lot of affirmations too. So you know, that's kind of where I got some of that as well. Did you feel like your writing had taken on a larger purpose at the time? Were you aware of that? Always. I have felt that the best writing didn't really come from me, that I was sort of channeling. I was just kind of like the satellite dish, you know, bringing it in. So I've always sort of felt that way. And now since this book became such a big hit and then all my other books too, I hear from so many people that tell me I changed their life. So I really recognize that my work is important or it has changed people's lives. So that's very humbling and very, you know, it makes me feel really good. It kind of gives me a purpose. But did I always think that? I mean, I always wanted to change the world. I've always had this desire to change the world. Like I, I always say, my big goal is to change paradigms. We believe so many things that aren't true, you know, and I, you know, I just think a big revolution is going to be happening. I mean, I think that's kind of what's happening now <laughs> that, you know, re revolution is coming. Mm. And I mean, revol spiritual revolution where we're recognizing there is something so much bigger and the days of, you know, going for profit above all, you know, just all these things that we thought were so important, I think are just crumbling. And I think the spiritual aspect is coming in to take us to the other side, so to speak. You've also said before that your inbox was one of your biggest blessings. And I see you, I, I went back and looked at some of your older blog posts and you're all up in the comments and everything. I mean, that that's very time consuming. So you obviously enjoy that engagement with your readers. In the beginning, I did that quite a bit and I did really enjoy it. It got to the point where I couldn't keep up with it. And now it, it's like, okay, if I happen to have an extra hour or something, I might go on there and, and do that. But I, in the beginning, oh, like I tried to answer every email. I mean, I was thrilled because I had written all my life, but you don't get that much feedback, really. You know, you write an article for 
say People Magazine. I mean, every now and then somebody will write a letter and say thank you, whatever. But I mean, it's not like you got a lot of feedback. So I was just so thrilled. Wow, people are responding. I mean, I guess throughout my life, all my books, I'd have various people. Like I wrote a book called Living Big. That might have been the one that was actually before God doesn't have bad hair days. But anyway, and some guy called me and you know he wanted to buy a bunch of copies. So I mean, I've had some of that kind of feedback before, but not like this one to where there was so much. So I was just so thrilled in the beginning. That's why I was really trying to answer and trying to respond to people. And it just became too hard to do it anymore. So, and I still do now. I mean, I kind of have some time to do it now. You're seen as sort of a spiritual teacher, really. I mean, there's no really no other way to to put it because you're putting this out there. You're helping to empower people and to help people understand that their thoughts create their reality. And then in 2018, that becomes like your 2020. Basically, your dad passes in April, your mom passes in early October. Both of them were in their 80s. And then something else happened after that. A couple weeks later, your daughter passed unexpectedly. And you described it as a PhD in grief. I wanted you to talk talk a little bit about how you process that, given everything that you knew about those realities, those principles of life initially, because I think a lot of people, in fact, I had a best friend's past, he he committed suicide a couple of weeks ago. And and I got so many calls from people. And one of the questions was, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you processing this? And it's interesting, because I don't think I ever really fully admitted how I was truly, truly processing it, because I don't really see him as being gone. But, and I know that's kind of hard for some people to to kind of understand. And it's almost like you have to play the game of, and it's not, I'm not belittling anything. I know it's as a parent, that must be, you know, the last thing you can ever imagine, but how were you really dealing with it at the time? Well, it is definitely the hardest thing I've ever, you know, experienced in my life. In some ways, I was lucky that I had a lot of background in the very thing you were talking about with your friend, you know, how you know there's this bigger reality and they're not really gone. So I already knew a lot of that theoretically. In fact, I remember Taz telling me at my mom's funeral, which was literally a week from when she passed, mom, you're handling this so well. You're so much better than, but, but I knew, you know, I've, I've read so many books. I'm friends with Anita Morjani, who's, you know, went to the other side. And I was always interested in that. And one of my friends, in fact, I, it makes me think of your story. When her husband died, he was in his 90s and she was there with him and they were Jewish and everybody was like, Betty, you seem happy or you seem okay. She didn't feel that grief because she saw that beautiful spirit going. And then now to the point where when somebody is, you know, gets cancer or is going to die, her comment is, oh, I'm so excited for them. <laughs> I mean, that's how she sees it. You know, she's so excited. But when it's your kid, you, you can't really see it that way. No. And it has been just gut-wrenching, to be honest. I was in the middle of finishing my Course in Miracles book. And of course, one of the main tenets of Course in Miracles is I am not a body. I am free. You know, who I am is my spirit, unfettered, you know, dancing across the cosmos. That's who I really am. So I got some comfort in the kind of things I was writing about. And I think just having that discipline required, you know, to finish the book, because I could have easily said, hey, look, I, I just can't do this. You know, but I did. I ended up going to India because I was already, you know, committed to go to India for this Tribes for Good. And that ended up being a really beautiful spiritual experience that helped me with starting the 222 Foundation I started for my daughter. So a lot of things have happened, but it is a roller coaster. You know, they say grief is a roller coaster. And I don't think you ever get over it. I think you learn to carry it. And one of the things I've said before is 
as Taz got older, you know, she was 25. It was one week after her 25th birthday when, you know, the cops come to my door that she's at the hospital and they're life flighting her to Kansas City. I mean, we'd literally been texting on the phone and we're going to go see Stars Born. I mean, you know, this is not an expected thing. It was just a shocking thing. But even before that, it was like very apparent to me she was no longer, you know, the baby in the crib. That physical reality was gone. You know, she was no longer the five-year-old going off to kindergarten, you know, in the little pink backpack, little flower dress. She was no longer the fourth grader, the 21-year-old. She was, you know, evolving. So, you know, now she's no longer in a physical body, but I believe that I can continue to communicate with her. I believe that there is a bigger purpose here. I mean, whatever purpose it is, I would gladly give it away ever. I mean, if I could have her back, I mean, I don't want this purpose, but I do believe that somehow she and I, you know, are working together on something we agreed to do somehow, you know, way back when. And I do believe that I will be joined back with her, you know, and that we will have infinity together. You know, this time here on planet earth is so short. So I get some comfort from that. I don't know if I'm really answering your question. I mean, I have been everything from unable to get out of bed some days, you know, staring at the ceiling fan, you know, literally just so distraught with grief. But again, I have this background in that there is more, there is more. And so that has been helpful. And again, I get one of the cool things that's happened. She and I had a lot of little weird rituals that we do. And one of them was the first of the month, we'd always say hedgehog. And whoever said it first was supposed to have a lucky. So when she was in college, you know, she's a college kid. She stays up to 1201. And then she immediately texted me hedgehog, you know, so, okay, you won. <laughs> and then she went off to Europe. And of course, again, five hours, six hours, whatever earlier. So the first few months, I didn't see any hedgehogs, but starting in May, so that had been, she died in October. So I don't know, five, six months later, on May 1st of 2019, six, seven months after she died, a hedgehog came to me. I mean, in kind of a weird way. And from that point on, the first of every month, I get a hedgehog of some kind. Sometimes it's really bizarre in that it'll come from her old phone. The other day I was doing an interview, just like you and I, and the person that was interviewing me, she was in Maine and a hedgehog wanders into her yard. I mean, and it was on, it was on May 1st of this year. So Taz sends me signs. So it's, you know, it's easier for me to believe that she's still here and to know that I will see her again. And I also have to think, you know, like when she went off to Europe, I was, I was kind of sad, like, oh, I won't see her for a while. I mean, I did go visit her, but you know what I mean? It's like, she's gone. We went to college. But I knew I'd see her again. So in some ways, I know I will see her again. And this is not at all what I wanted to happen. I, you know, I can really feel sorry for myself. Oh, I'll never have grandkids. You know, she was my only child. I'll never have grandkids. You know, she never got to get married. She was looking at buying a house, you know, all those things. But what she is doing now, I believe, is probably so much more exciting and fun than what she'd be doing here on this material plane. Again, it's that, you know, and I always say my task in life is to change the dominant paradigm. So talk about the ultimate dominant paradigm is that death. I mean, everybody's afraid of death. So to be able to change that, and I'm not saying I've changed it in my head. I'm not saying I'm not sad because I am, and I would do anything to change it back. But I do feel there is some greater purpose here that I haven't quite figured out yet, you know, that Taz and I have agreed to do. The number 222 is very significant for you and Taz. Yeah. Another one of those rituals, when she was in junior high, who knows why, but she put up a Facebook group 
the amazing awesomeness of 222 or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, her friends would call her at 222. And if they'd ask her, how much does that cost? She'd say $2.22. Or <laughs> they'd say, what time is it? If it was five o'clock, she'd say 222. So when she started that, she and I had gone on a couple of trips that summer. We had gone to Alaska. And of course, what hotel room do we get? But 222. We go to London, get the room 222. So from that point on, she and I always would send each other pictures of 222. I mean, you know, it's just a thing we always had, like, or we'd be somewhere and we'd stand under a 222. So it was just kind of our number. So anyway, I decided after she died to start a foundation, I call it Tazgrass 222 Foundation. And, you know, our big plan is to change the consciousness of the world. You know, I've got um, goals, you know, to try to move away from this belief in lack and, you know, that all people long to be creative. So it has a lot of various things that Taz stood for. So I started the 222 Foundation. It's given me, you know, some meaning and it keeps her legacy alive. And the other thing that's happened, again, I've got all these readers that are always sending me emails. And so they're always sending me pictures of 222. I mean, I get those all the time from people. So I feel like in some ways that's Taz communicating. She's made all kinds of difference in people's lives too, I believe. I mean, this could be far-fetched, but you know, her father from New Zealand, you know, he's, he was back in New Zealand and he didn't really get to know him until later. But anyway, you know, after that thing happened with the, at the mosque in New Zealand, you know, Taz spoke Arabic. So he, and that was after she had passed and he had a dream where Taz was in heaven or whatever, welcoming them, you know, those people that passed in that. So it's so much bigger. All I can say that I know with any surety and I know nothing. Really, well, I know nothing. That's one of my big things I love to say. I, I, I uh, channel Hans Schultz all the time. I know nothing is that it's so much bigger and that what I know is so minuscule to what's out there to what's possible. And, you know, I just have to kind of surrender to the bigger thing because I don't understand it. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, that part of your story, it, it sort of reminds me of The Alchemist, which I'm sure you've read before. But for those listeners who have not read that book, there's a plot point in the end. And in fact, the story behind the book itself, you know, it was released by Paulo Coelho. It collected dust. Nothing happened to it. And he got the rights back. His publisher gave him the rights back. And then he just didn't feel right that the book didn't really get any recognition. And so he shopped it around again a few years later. And this other publisher ended up taking it on. And that's when it it started to pick up traction over the next nine years. And then it became a bestseller. But he could have easily just let it let it just collect dust. But he said that the thing that inspired him to revisit the idea of publishing the book was the book itself. He reread it. He reread his own book and it inspired him to, to say, no, I know the universe is conspiring for me. And then the plot point at the end of the book is that the young boy, Santiago, who's the, the hero of the story, he comes into uh, good fortune. He ends up getting this gold because of this sequence of, th of things that happens. And the alchemist who he's hanging out with at the end, he ends up giving half of Santiago's gold away to this uh, monk. And Santiago's like, what the hell? Why are you giving away half of my stuff? And he says, well, he comes up with this very spiritual reason for doing it. So anyway, Santiago goes off to see the pyramids and he ends up almost dying. He gets robbed and these people leave him for dead and he, they take all of his stuff. And so on his way back, he goes back to the monk and the monk gives him the half of the gold that he 
thought he was losing earlier in the story. And so my question for you is how often do you go back and revisit your material? Cause it seems like, you know, there's a reason why you had to research and develop all of these experiments and write and study the course of miracles. Every year you go back through the lessons over and over and over. And then this thing happens, this monumental traumatic thing happens. And it's almost like it could not have happened to the better, a better person than, than or, or more prepared person spiritually than yourself. Well, I think there is some truth to that. And I'm so glad you told me that story about the alchemist. I didn't know that story that he had, again, published. It sounds very similar to my E-squared. And I do go back and read my stuff from time to time. Whenever I was giving a workshop, you know, I, I've been all over the world giving workshops around E-squared. People, I mean, I've been to the Philippines and Finland and Peru and you name it, you know, people. But anyway, so while I'm on the airplane, you know, going to give a workshop, I would reread my book and I'd think, oh, this is really great. Or the other day, I actually re-listened to this podcast that I'd done. I was like, oh my gosh, that really inspired me. <laughs> so I, I think all the time, I mean, in some ways, I think we write partly because this is what I think I write, because that's what I need to hear. That's what I need to know. So I would say pretty frequently, I mean, not like I sit around and read my own words a lot, but my writing is often aspirational. You know, I don't always live up to all the things that I want to be. You know, I, I'm still a work in progress. And I think I can read my words and, wow, inspire myself. So I do think I write for myself. And if anybody else happens to like it, that's just all the better. So, yeah. You have so many stories that you've heard from your readers. You have stories that you've reported in your books. And just talking about people who have crossed over to the other side. Uh, obviously, there are tons of theories about you know what actually happens, and maybe nobody knows for certain. But you do tell this one story in E cubed with the four year old who wanted to talk to his baby sister. I believe. Can you just recount that story? I love that story. It's about a a little boy whose parents you know are having you know a new baby and. After the little baby sister was born, this little boy's like, oh, mom, I need some alone time with my baby sister. I mean, he was just insistent. I need just me and her, me and her, me and her. They're kind of like, well, they'd read the books about sibling rivalry. Is he going to put a pillow overhead? I mean, what, what's going on here? <laughs> but finally, because he would not give up this desire he had to have his alone time with his baby sister, they went ahead and you know let him go into the room and they stand outside the nursery and you know he tiptoes up to the crib and he looks over into the crib and he goes, tell me about God. I'm starting to forget. Wow. And it seems like you and Taz worked out that little 222 connection so that she can make sure you don't ever forget <laughs> and that yeah. we don't ever forget. Yeah, so. well, I will never forget. I mean, that wouldn't be possible. I have to have dementia really bad if I would. No, forget. I mean about the God, the God connection. Oh, that's all oh, right. Exactly. Yes, for sure. This is this sure. is this. There's a bigger picture at play. After everything you've been through, the loss of a child, which is probably the greatest loss anyone could ever experience, the New York Times bestseller, all over the world traveling. How would you define success these days? Wow. I just did this laddership pod with uh, like 175 people from 27 countries. And th I think they asked some question like that. And I said, you know, my biggest goal was to be able to see your success would be to see the face of God in every person I see, mm. to see the light. 
In fact, one of the things I, I try to remember to wake up in the morning and ask myself, you know, what would a being of light today? <laughs> what would I do if I knew I was this being of light? I mean, you even have the name. I don't know. Is that your, is that your original name? <laughs> no, you? it's not. Okay, no. I wondered about that. I changed yeah. it for this conversation. Then. Oh, well, no, I knew you've had it before this. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a perfect name. We should all be named Light. Although right. we get mixed up as which light we were talking <laughs> to, but anyway. <laughs> if someone came to you, Pam, and they were an aspiring writer of spiritual books, what sort of life guidance or advice or suggestions would you offer to them? Well, I always believe just write, 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 write. And again, you write so much that eventually you feel that spirit coming through you, you know, where you're actually, again, channeling something else. So, you know, people want to hear, and I mean, some people, maybe the book just comes to them anyway. And so they're already doing that. But I think a lot of people come up with this, oh, I'm going to write a book. But you have to be kind of disciplined. You have to show up. You have to prove to the muses, to the bigger thing, to God, whatever you want to call it, that you're serious, that you really are going to be there. You'll be the secretary, you know, whatever you've got to say out there. I mean, I think there's a lot of messages that the world needs to hear. So I think we need more secretaries, you know, that are going to bring that message out to the world. So it's almost like a surrender, like, okay, here I am. I'm going to sit here at my computer. And you tell me what to say. So kind of like that. So I guess I would say something like that. And to not do it unless you really feel that you need to do it, because it's not an easy field or an easy road to hoe, so to speak. You know, it's something you have to really love. You have to love it to where you can't do anything else, I think. I mean, to be a full-time writer, maybe not to write a book. Certainly, you know, people can write books if they feel called to do that. But I think mostly to listen to your guidance and listen to, you know, that voice, that inner voice that is urging you to write and is willing to work with you and be your partner. You know, the way Bill Thetford and Helen Shuckman were partners together to create that thing. And you kind of have to have a partner with God, the dude, the bigger the bigger thing. I like to tie this back into childhood, usually at the end of these. And sometimes people will say, you know, what was your favorite toy? Oh, it was a Barbie doll or, or it was a BMX bike or something. And now they've started their movement. And yours is pretty obvious connection. You, you've always read and written. And so it looks like you were born with this purpose, whether you were realized it or not. And everything that's happened along the way has kind of just helped you to evolve and get to that point. I think that the most evolved person is the, is the person that gets to the point and they, where they realize they don't know anything, <laughs> right? All I know yeah. is I know nothing, <laughs> but that also means they're being completely led by their heart. So you're, you're led by your heart. You're embodying that, that course in miracles principle, which is this whole, I need do nothing. I need yeah. do nothing. Right. And that's, that's, I think that's it. That's, that's the answer along that, with 42. That's what I mean. It's like the course of miracles isn't hard. It's just so different. I mean, who would tell you I need do nothing. I mean, that was one of the main things the course of miracles tells you don't do anything. Let the spirit, let this universe, let this bigger thing work through you. But that's totally the opposite of what we're taught, how we're trained. That's why, you know, I think you know, we're shattering a lot of paradigms now. And um, anyway, so yes, that is one of the, the best things from Course of Miracles. I need to do nothing. And your book came out just in time for lockdown, Course yeah. of Miracles Experiment. Well, you know, what's funny. The um, epigraph in the beginning of that book says, 
go forth my book and destroy the world as we know it. And it's like, oh my God, why did I put that in there? <laughs> so this is your fault. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. What are you working on next? What's next for Pam Grout? Okay. So one of the coolest things happened after Taz passed, this artist from Hamburg, Germany wrote me a letter and she said, you know, your daughter was beautiful. You've inspired me or your daughter was a beautiful flower. You've inspired me as an artist because you know she had read Art and Soul Reloaded. So I'm going to paint you a flower every week for a year. And also she's going to blow a glass butterfly because the butterfly is supposedly the secret to the soul or sing to the soul or something. And she starts, you know, the first Saturday, she sends it to me, second Saturday. And I thought, there's no way she's going to keep doing this. This woman did this 52 weeks, sent me this flower, told me what the flower meant, you know, the, the glass blown butterfly. And then she auctioned them off to raise money for the 222 Foundation. But because she has these beautiful flower pictures, I'm currently working on a card deck. And it's kind of a better way to do death. And by that, I mean, you know, if we're about shattering paradigms, again, this fear of death, I mean, there's so many different things. And also this belief that, you know, they're gone, that we can't communicate with them. Just like you know about your friend, that you're, that you're still with him or her, that you still can communicate. So it's, it's like a shocking thing for people. They don't believe that. So it's like a card deck, you know, those, the, you pull out one a week. So I think there's so many books about grief and losing kids and all that, but I don't know that there is a card deck like this. So that's what I'm currently working. So each of those 52 flowers with some kind of story of hope, you know, some of the things that happened to me, like about the hedgehogs or, you know, various things like that. So that's what I'm currently working on. And the 222 Foundation, you award $10,000 every February 22nd. Right. $10,222.22. And, you know, the first year it was so cool. I was in India and, you know, I go to the Taj Mahal. Have you been there? Not yet. No, I've been to India several times, but. Spiritual place. I mean, it's amazing. It's a monument to love. And it's just because we thought, oh, cheesy. Everybody goes there, but it's amazing. But anyway, so we get there. The woman that it's a monument to, her name is Mumtaz. Mumtaz. <laughs> this mogul built this monument of love. It took 20,000 workers, 22 years. So there's the 222 to build this monument to love. So we ended up leaving some of her ashes there. And then we leave there and we go out to this place. There's this place called Shiro's Hangout. And it's run, it's like a little coffee shop, you know, tea and little snacks and things run by these women that are acid attack survivors. You know, in India, there's still guys will be mad. You know, you didn't give me a male heir and they'll throw acid on their, I mean, you know, crazy stuff. But for years, they'd go into hiding when that would happen. But these women, you know, they're out there, they're giving of their gifts, they're being beautiful, you know, their light is just shining. And so they were getting ready to move locations. So that was the obvious first recipient of the 222 Foundation. So I feel like Taz led me right to them after, you know, this thing, Muntaz, the 222 at the Taj Mahal. And then we leave there literally and find the Shiro's Hangout. So, you know, that was the first recipient. And last year, we, you know, had a school, built a school in Nepal and a, a Taz forest with 2,222 trees. And, and then we did this little other project. And so I'm getting ready or taking pitches now, actually, for um, the 222 award for this coming February. So how do people apply? 
I'm going to do a blog post about that tomorrow, actually. But um, they just sent a pitch to me. I, again, I'm DIY. So I can't remember what the email is, but I can give it to you uh, if people apply. So I would love it. I mean, there's three things we look for. Changing consciousness, this idea that everybody needs to be creative. We look for really creative projects, things that really can change the world. Because if we're going to change the world, we have to change the consciousness first. As long as we stay with these same ideas, we're just going to keep getting the same old stuff. So we have got to change consciousness. So any project that has something like that. But anyway, I just have an email and people just send it to me. And then I have a little committee and we go over it. Like last year, I had 100 applications. And it's really hard to decide because there's so many great ideas out there. But anyway, and you know, it's, it's not a huge amount, but it's, you know, it can help somebody. I love your blog. You post so regularly. You inspire me so much because I, I started in 2016, I started a daily email that I send out called the daily dose of inspiration. And as you can imagine, you run out of inspiration (laughs) (laughs) sometimes. And you're like, what do I write about? And and your blog is one of the blogs that I go to for inspiration, for the inspiration guy. So not that I steal your stuff, but it's just, it helps me to, to see things differently. And you always post the best quotes to start them off with. I do and, love um, quotes. <laughs> you do. You, yeah, yeah. Your quotes are all throughout your books. So I highly recommend following your blog and reading your books. I mean, we didn't even get into E squared and all of that. I mean, that's, that's, that's a whole other podcast, but they're so fantastic. They're so accessible and it's a really fun way to embody, not just learn about these principles, but to really embody the principles into your everyday life because there's so many you know, it, it, you you do a great job of helping people see their day through these principles. And it's like, you can't even have a dull moment anymore because, you know, you could be surprised by something you see or something you hear at any time, at any moment, in any place. And it can just it create a story for your whole day that you just get so excited about telling people about. But that leads me to my last question. This is really off topic, but I think it's also relevant for people who are committed to this kind of work and this way of living their life is how have you experienced dating as someone who is a student of A Course in Miracles and you understand consciousness and the God? Because it seems like most people aren't necessarily like that. And it just causes you to see things and maybe communicate about things a little bit differently. So what's your experience been in that regard? Well, I've got a partner that I've been with for, gosh, 18 years. And He's not exactly, I mean, I have other groups, I, I call them my possibility posses, where if I really want to talk about this stuff, you know, I find somebody like you, like-minded people, he's Catholic, and he still goes to Mass, and, you know, he, he believes in the bigger things, but he's a little more traditional, but, you know, one of the great principles, of course, in miracles is, you know, we don't judge, everybody has their own path, and, you know, it's not my place to try to convert him or whatever, and he's a really loving, wonderful person. So I don't know, I haven't dated for a long time, but I think, you know, back in the day, like back when you're like making a list of affirmations of things that you wanted, of course, I would want someone that has shared my spiritual beliefs. And while we share some spiritual beliefs, we're not totally lined up, but anyway, (laughs) it seems to work out. (laughs) Beautiful. All right, Pam, thank you so much. And I look forward to meeting in person one of these days. I know we've been talking for years about that. So I'm happy that you jumped in on the podcast in the meantime, just to have this conversation. But I do feel that our paths are destined to cross at some point. And I look forward to that day. Thanks for listening to my chat with Miss Pam Grout. 
Pam has written 20 books, with the most recent one being The Course in Miracles Experiment, a starter kit for rewiring your mind, which is a bestseller. And you can check out the rest of her books, including E Squared and the follow-up E Cubed, everywhere books are sold. In the meantime, if you want to hear more stories like Pam's, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and also poke around a little bit in the archive. You're going to discover many other episodes with inspiring people who've overcome all kinds of odds in an effort to discover their purpose or their calling. The common theme you're going to hear again and again is that at some point, they all said yes to what was in their heart and they kept saying yes, even when it seemed scary to do so. In other words, the path to your purpose is already built into your life and all you have to do is say yes to whatever you're feeling and sensing in your heart right now. I know it seems too simple to be true, but that's why I'm committed to sharing these stories week after week so you can hear the same blueprint repeated over and over and over through the lives of different people enough times to either take action on what's in your heart or if you've already been taking action to remind you that you're right where you should be right here, right now. I'm also appreciative of those of you who've taken a couple minutes to rate and review the podcast. The time you spend doing that is going to help countless others discover these incredible stories, and maybe they'll be inspired to find their purpose as well. You never know. If you want to read a transcript of the interview on my website, just go to lightwatkins.com tunnel, and you'll see a link to the transcript along with a pop-up link to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that you'll get from me each morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. I've been sending it out to thousands of people every day since 2016, if you can imagine that. And I've seen people get addicted to them after only a week, which is a good addiction. So, I highly recommend signing up for those. And of course, if you have any feedback or suggestions, you can reach me directly via text at 323-405-9166. Guys, thanks again for taking the time to listen and share this podcast with your friends and your followers. Make sure you tag me now on social media at Light Watkins so I can shout you out. And in the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with the next amazing story from the end of the tunnel. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.